Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. And now your host, Tim Penny and the Art of War coaches. Hiya folks, welcome to the Art of War. Here we are doing it again, talking tactics and strategy with the best players in the game. I'm your host, Steve Joel, and as much as I love this game, I sit solidly in the mid-tier. So here to make sure we're asking all the right questions is former Brohammer team captain, current top-ranked sisters player in the world, winner of events such as the Crucible, the Lone Star Open, the Dallas Open. He's won it all. John Lennon, come on down. How are you, man? Hello, hello. I am fantastic. It's always a pleasure to be talking to you, Steve. Uh, very excited for uh, a more chaotic guest today. <laughs> That's right. Hey, before we do that, though, as we record this, it's just uh, a day or two after Halloween. Did you hand out lots of candy? Did you get any candy? How did Halloween go? You know, Halloween was great here in the States. Uh, threw my costume together very last minute, but uh, scored a little bit of candy for myself and uh, had a pretty good time. <laughs> nice. I want to address a controversy before we introduce our guest right now, right here. Brad Chester and Blake Law on the Art of War Unbroken are calling this podcast Art of War Vanilla and it's got to stop. You know what? Uh, this is the OG. This is the Art of War that started it all, the father of all other Art of War podcasts. Mr. Law needs to show some respect. This is the Art of War and all others are pretenders to the throne. So we'll, 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 we're going to have to deal with him, John. Yeah, well, I actually never heard this trash talk, but maybe I just don't go low enough in the view count to hear it. <laughs> Here's how this show works. Every week we talk to a tournament winner or top player about an army that they've had success with at a big event. We do it in two episodes. In part one, we're going to break down the list. What's in it, how it works, the warlord traits, the relics, the strats, how everything stacks to make the army beautiful. It'll be a free lesson in list building. Then in part two, we look at the matchups. Whatever army you play, you'll learn a heap in part two. When John and our guest go head to demonic head, part two is for subscribers only. So if you like what you hear in part one, go to the artofwar40k.com and subscribe for the rest of the show. This week, uh, well, our guest is on the US Army esports team. He's the top ranked Chaos Demons player in the ITC. He's had numerous ITT wins and even more podium finishes. He also finished in the top eight at the GW Orlando Open with this army chaos demons mark asht how's army life oh you know lots of uh traveling lots of work but uh it's all right it's it's not bad you know and you managed to fit in some 40k around it as well yeah when i can uh as 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 much as i can when i can right the reason i wanted to do this episode is uh that demons also finished in the top eight at socal uh, much more recently just a couple of weeks back albeit not piloted by you but we want to get the lowdown on how a player makes this army work it's not one that's in the limelight a lot but it is nice to see it pop up in the in the top echelon you know at the top tables uh, do you think demons have play right now in this meta uh they do have their place uh i would say that they absolutely you can go to a tournament and expect to um if played correctly you can definitely end up podium uh on podium with them it's it's going yeah. to be very difficult to put in a first place at a major with a demons you know I, I i would love to say that they're they're at the point that with the right pilot that they could definitely do it but considering some of their biggest weaknesses are things like admec um and some of the strats that uh drakari have access to given that some of the stronger demons are slanesh demons and whatnot 
it, it does put them in a little bit of a bind. Sisters is also a rough matchup as well. All really, really solid armies that you're probably going to see when you start hitting uh, the top tables at the very least. Right. So we'll get into some of those matchups in part two of this episode, obviously, and and that's where we can kind of talk through the scenarios that you, you, you're talking about here. But why don't you start by running us through the list uh, that you, you've settled on for the moment, and uh, we'll start talking about it. Right. Uh, so um, I'll kind of just go over the more what I consider easy and less of a flex slot and more of a generally what you're going to see in demons lists all around stuff. Uh, you have Bellicor. Uh, I think you're going to see Bellicor in most lists uh, nowadays that are top tabling. Uh, Bellicor, given the defensive stats that he has, the access to all the demon stratagems, essentially, uh, his specialty in the psychic phase, especially with uh, Penumbral Curse, and um, you know his, his abilities far and wide are better than anything else we have in the Codex, bar none. Like, he is... He is a huge asset, and I think he is a big reason that we can still, in this age of these really great ninth edition codexes uh, popping up everywhere, I think he's a big reason why we can do a lot. So I think, you know, uh, and with the most recent FAQ, the fact that he no longer breaks um, breaks your uh, demonic bonus for mono, uh, mono god, and uh, you still get all your specialty traits from the detachment he's in uh he, he's a big asset and he can kind of plug and play into anything as far as demons go uh, uh another big part of the list is the three keepers of secrets i think we also see that a lot uh the keepers of secrets you'll see usually the whips there are some people who try and use the shields some people who uh try and use the hands uh but it's usually the whips i haven't seen anyone try and use the summoning knife uh generally considered the worst options for him but the uh keepers of secrets very solid um each keeper moves a base of 14 inches at its top profile and then in pure slanesh detachments their loci allows them and every slanesh demon within six inches to advance and charge so when you're looking at an average of a 3.5 inch advance you're looking at 17.5 inch uh movement along with a charge which is an average of seven inches so you're looking at an average of a 24.5 inch threat range with the one inch to get into uh, combat means 25.5 inches away. So if you deploy on the line or close to the line, you're going to cover the entire, on average, the entire dead man zone with a keeper of secrets. Because uh, the dead man zone typically between your generic setups of deployment are 24 inches in between. Uh, they're very fast. Uh, they have 10 attacks each. Six are going to be with a sword and uh, the Witstealer sword and four with the claws at their top profile. Uh, the sword is really solid because uh, once it makes, uh, once it damages something, uh, that thing has minus one to its hit rolls for the rest of the game. Uh, all of its attacks are AP3, three damage. The only difference between the sword and the claws, uh, besides the minus one to hit, is the the strength that they use. So the sword is strength eight while the claws are strength six. Uh, so they having 10 attacks uh, hitting on twos with while no reroll ones to hit, they reroll ones to wound, uh, which is really solid. Uh, at flat three damage, uh, they are really solid at picking up elites. They have two psychic powers each. Uh, this gives you with three keepers of secrets, you could choose to do all six Slanesh Discipline uh, powers, because there are six Slanesh Discipline powers. But more often than not, uh, you're going to see a lot of people double up on uh, Hysterical Frenzy, which allows you to attack in the Psychic phase as though it were the fight phase. 
uh, you know, giving yourself um, plus one to or a six plus feel no pain. Uh, and then there's a couple others that see play here and there, but those, those two are the ones you see stacked up the most, in my opinion, then you have, uh, with them having, like I said, 10 attacks each, they can cleave through elites, but also they have the strength and the damage characteristic to cleave through, uh, bigger, tougher models. And on top of it, when there's 10 attacks plus the six whips, which also hit on twos and they're assault weapons. So you can run and still shoot and hit on threes and then they just reroll ones to wound period not just in the fight phase so you can reroll ones to wound with your whip as well and it's ap2 flat two damage at six shots strength six so those are also really solid uh taking out elite so, and when you overall look at the fact that they have essentially 16 attacks they can frequently get on something they're not the worst thing to throw into a horde either so they're kind of all arounders and they're pretty solid for their points um we have stuff like you know, a couple squads of just demonettes. I think demonettes are really underrated as uh, backline uh, objective keepers. Uh, a lot of people sing the praises of uh, nerglings, and as they should, nerglings are excellent. But the thing with uh, with demonettes is the fact that Slanesh, overall, all the Slanesh demons have the ability to fight as though they charged. When you're looking at a list like this, this list does tend to, not every time, but tend to, uh, play more aggressively and a common way to take backfield objectives is through deep strikes or fast moving things that want to get into melee uh, the reason why is because when you take a thing off of an objective via melee you're not just taking something off of an objective but you're taking the objective for yourself so it's a two objective swing in your favor uh, the thing is is when you go into demonettes it, yes there's only 10 of them but they still get the fight as though they charge trait. So when you've pushed Keepers of Secrets and things like Bellacore into the opponent's you know, deployment zone or into the midfield on other objectives, and you're getting into combat, by the time that turn two rolls around where they're deep striking in and taking you off the of back objectives with melee a lot of times, they're in a situation where they have to choose do they want to get rid of the threat that's in these Marines or maybe sisters that charge in enough with the number of their attacks and whatnot uh, to where they're not going to come off the objective in their lines, or do they want you to be able to swing first with your demonette squad, which can weaken things like span because you're fighting first every fight phase from then on, uh, you are able to basically pick up what they were going to use against you. So the two squads of demonettes are generally in my backfield objective holder holders. I have, uh, the brimstone horrors, uh, the brimstone horrors are, they're 50 points, they're only a couple. Uh, they're only three power level, and um, they're just excellent for being able to spend your. You know, you don't have a lot of command points in this list because you're taking multiple patrols. You're taking a lot of exalted traits. So being able to spend one command point and put those along with the small group of flamers and also a group of furies into reserves, so you can easily get uh. Re uh, retrieve Valkarius data, or table quarters, and stuff like that, even if you are blocked up by uh, some certain movement and move blockers and whatnot. Um, having that ability with those Brimstone Horrors being at the exact power level that they're at is really nice. So with that, speaking of the Furies and the uh, Flamers, the Furies are Mark of Zinch because it gives them a 4-up invul since Zinch demons get a plus 1 to their invul save, so it makes them a little more resilient 
just in case the opponent decides they're going to, you know, shoot at them with very minimal fire firepower or split fire, you have a better chance of surviving, and then maybe you roll hot enough that you have something that can go and fly around, hit objectives a little bit. The uh, Flamers of Zinch are really nice because, again, you can deep strike them, 12-inch movement, 12-inch Flamers. You know, you have a 24-inch threat range. They're also infantry, so they can they can be used to... Uh, do certain things like rod and whatnot or banners if you decide to take that stuff like that it gives you a little more to do actions but also there's a great one command point stratagem uh, that is uh gives them uh sixes to wound do mortal wounds and when you're talking about a squad of five of them and it's five d six shots you know it can really help you crack open those extra wounds especially on tougher models uh finally i have uh the lord of change and the contorted epitome and those two uh, those those two, in my opinion, are the ones I like talking about most uh, because I think they are. I have two very differing takes uh, nowadays uh, from from what is commonly seen, and that is that I think the Lord of Change is slowly, as much as I love it, I think it's on its way out, and uh, I think the Contorted Epitome, uh, I. I have seen it, but I haven't seen it as much as I thought I would. I think it's al almost as much of an auto-include as Bellacor, uh, in my personal opinion, in a, in a demon's list. Uh, the Lord of Change is my warlord, uh, and he takes my relic as well, my initial relic. And he is also given an exalted trait. Uh, the exalted trait is a 6 plus feel no pain, that whenever you make the feel no pain at the end of the attack sequence, he also heals that much Uh damage. So if you make two six-up feel-no-pains, he also heals two wounds once the unit is done with its attacks. Um, he takes the Relic, the Impossible Robe, which gives him a three-plus invul. Those are rare to find and are going away as ninth edition codexes come out. So a three-up invul, really powerful. We've seen it here and there. And, uh, you know, it's it's those that have it, you know, can attest it really makes something hard to move. Uh, and then you have... Uh, the Warlord trait, uh, I believe uh, it is called Aura of Mutability. Uh, I'd have to double-check that. Or Incorporeal Form. I think it's actually Incorporeal Form. Sorry, Aura of Mutability is what I use for his Exalted trait. Incorporeal Form gives him a reduction of damage, so anything above one damage gets reduced by one in damage uh, to a minimum of one. And uh, so, yeah, with all of that, he's very hard to move. Uh, he also comes with a suite of Psychic Powers. He knows three from the Zinch Discipline. And I typically take with him a big thing I take with him is the uh, that that I don't see too often is actually Zinc Treason of Zinch. Because more often than not, in my opinion, if you're going to use him, you're going to smite, use Gaze of Fate reroll, or use um, the uh, Infernal Gate where you get D3 mortal wounds to the nearest unit and then uh, everything with or nearest model and then. Everything within three inches of that model also takes D3. Unless you cast it on 12+, plus, then it's D6 to everything. Uh, and those are commonly what you're going to use. So you're always going to have good damage output or dice manipulation with him. And since you're able to take a third psychic power, I think the swingiest one is the uh, Treason of Zinch. Treason of Zinch allows you to go into certain matchups, like if you randomly have the guard matchup, or if you randomly have you know any matchup where people have some leadership eight characters or less, and it's actually pretty reliable on this list, considering I run things like Phantasmagoria, which is a psychic power that allows you to reduce leadership. Bellacor himself allows you to reduce leadership. So if you're looking at a leadership eight thing and 
you've got the right things near, you can take that character, reduce them down to leadership six. Uh, the treason is each cast on an eight, I believe. And then you roll 2d6 trying to get above. Uh, you uh, roll 2d6 trying to get above the leadership of the character you're targeting. And if you do, that character is pretty much your character from the movement or from past the psychic phase. So taking over things like a tank commander or taking over certain uh, orc characters and whatnot and being able to charge them into your opponent uh, or shoot with them is really, really solid. Uh, so if it if you don't have any use for it, say you're fighting against you know Necrons where everything's leadership 10 and whatnot, you still have solid psychic powers uh, that you have. And then finally, the contorted epitome, which is the, the uh, object of my affection as far as demons go. I love the contorted epitome. I... Don't I don't think I've run a list since it's come out without it, as far as demons go. Uh, and it is a um, it's basically like a mini demon prince, just a little more expensive. But I can tell you why it's more expensive. So it casts two, just like a Zinch demon prince, uh, but it has a plus one to its cast, plus one to its denies. Uh, it has um, a twelve inch movement without wings. Again, you're Slanesh, so you can advance and charge. Um, and then it ignores all mortal wounds on a two plus really great against gray knights right now and thousand suns. Uh, keep in mind the psychic phase happens before that shooting phase. So can help a lot. Uh, then probably the biggest part of it, in my opinion, uh, while it has kind of subpar defense and its attacks are decent, six attacks at strength five AP one, uh, two damage, and then two more attacks at strength. Uh, I believe it's six AP two, three damage. Uh, the big portion of it is everything within six inches of the contorted epitome, doesn't have to be an engagement range, has to roll 3d6 and get below their leadership in order to fall back. Um, so we talked a little bit about leadership math with taking things over and the fact that I already have debuffs. She is the one I run Phantasmagoria on because if you're within range of her fallback aura and she gets Phantasmagoria off, you're also within range of the minus one leadership bubble. Uh, so if you're looking at, you know, the highest leadership we see right now is leadership 10. Uh, on 3d6, the average is 11 or well, 10.5 if we want to be exact. Uh, so already uh, the odds are stacked against them to be able to fall back. But then on top of it, if you're minus one leadership from her, and now you're leadership nine, minus one leadership from Bellacor, you have to roll below your leadership. That would mean essentially you have to roll two, two, three, or below that. Uh, so you know you have to roll a bunch of below fours. Uh, if you're looking at normal squads that are like leadership eight and Space Marines and stuff like that, uh, you're having to roll below a triple two. Uh, which is really difficult to do. So chances are they're going to be stuck in combat. And uh, with most demon lists, you don't really have shooting. You have melee. Uh, and the contorted epitome allows you to do things like punish people for trying to move block you if the terrain is open enough. Because uh, typically speaking, uh, movement blocking, while... Uh, some stuff is really good at doing it by itself. There are cases where in order to movement block, you have to use multiple models. And when you use the rules of, you know, I have to be able to attack you to pick you up. Yeah. Uh, if someone movement blocks me with two rhinos and I go, okay, uh, I'm going to charge every demon I can get in to 
one rhino. And then obviously I'm going to pick up that rhino, but the important part's going to come afterwards when I consolidate and pile into the other rhino and the contorted epitomies nearby. And because I can't legally attack it, that rhino sticks around, doesn't fall back. I've just made my demons immune to shooting for the turn, which is probably one of our biggest weaknesses. We don't have shooting, so we have to get across the board. Now, uh, we do have the speed with Slanesh, but uh, sometimes speed isn't enough because, again, you know, really tactical players will movement block you properly. And you will kind of be, you'll have to spend a turn, you know, hiding where you can with the terrain. But if you want to make movements up, you are going to leave some stuff exposed. And uh, by utilizing your opponent's models as sort of these uh, pieces that you can uh, leapfrog from, you know, and stay protected by not letting them fall back. And with that, that that kind of, I just, I really like the contorted epitome. On top of it, it's the one thing you can, in the list, that you can put the gem, the uh, forbidden gem on, without being targeted. So if I saw a Keeper of Secrets, and I'm in a shooting list, and it has a forbidden gem, I generally... I'm like, man, I really need to take that out before it gets in range. Because for those who don't know, the Forbidden Gem is a 12-inch aura, does not need line of sight. Uh, and uh, once per game, you can choose a character uh, on at the beginning of your opponent's phase. Uh, you can choose a character that's within 12 inches of the holder, and you roll 3d6. And if you can beat their leadership, which again, should be statistically pretty easy given the bonuses you have, um, you shut that character down. So for that phase uh that means they can't move they can't shoot they can't do uh any psychic tests uh they can't attack uh their auras are all shut off uh so they can't affect any other units um they become essentially a pile of wounds which it can be used defensively you get you know something charging in like uh, you know a really smashy character uh, or, you know, you can use it defensively. I've done that before where you're in combat with a character and your keeper of secrets didn't pick it up and, um, or Bellicor somehow didn't pick it up. Okay. Well, in your movement phase, I'm going to shut down your character you're in combat with, and uh, now you're going to stay there. And again, now I'm immune to the shooting phase, essentially from the rest of your army. Um, the forbidden gem is, is huge. One of, uh, my favorite plays I've been able to do with the forbidden gem is, uh, I had a, uh, colleague of mine I was playing with and he's really awesome. He, uh, he advanced, um, uh, most of his orc army. And this is, uh, when, you know, they had the advance in charge as an aura from like, uh, Gazgul and he advanced a lot of his orc army and then Gazgul was in range and I shut it down in the charge phase, which then he lost the ability to advance and charge. And it pretty much took most of the orcs out of the ability to advance and charge and ruined the entire fight phase slash charge phase for him. Um, I think, I think it's just an amazing, uh, an amazing piece. And I think the contorted epitome is 100%. Uh, I, 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 you won't see me unless they change the data sheet, leave home without it. But yeah, that's the uh, list. I'm, and we're done. <laughs> I think that's uh, part one done folks. We're going to come back. <laughs> uh, no, I'm kidding. So listen, I don't think we've ever had a breakdown that impressive of, of a list. There are a couple of things that I really want to touch on before John goes crazy here though. Uh, one is, you mentioned the Penumbral Curse. This is on Balakor. Can you just tell us, uh, he's got Paul of Despair and Penumbral Curse in your list. What do those things mean and what do they do for folks who don't know? Right. So uh, Paul of Despair and Penumbral Curse are from the Noctis Discipline. Uh, just so everybody's aware, you know, again, uh, not everybody knows this, but 
uh, Bellacor has basically his own discipline, and the only way other demons get access to it is if they're using the army of renown that he is uh, from. Uh, but the uh, the thing is, is when you take him in a normal patrol detachment, he doesn't go back to having you know the normal uh, stuff. He he keeps his uh, Noctis discipline, and the Noctis discipline, while there are a lot of things that um, that only affect Noctis units and whatnot. Uh, these two in particular are really, really good, even if you're not in uh, Noctis, because they affect the opponent's units. Now, the Penumbral Curse uh, is basically a, it's a, both of these are Warp Charger 7, and they're 18 inch range. But the Penumbral Curse, you select one enemy unit within 18 inches, and until the start of your next psychic phase, each time a model in a unit makes a melee attack, you subtract one from the attack's wound roll and reduce the armor penetration of that attack by one. Now, you're in Demons. Um, armor penetration doesn't really matter except for maybe if you're running a bloodthirster because they're like one of the few demons with a actual armor save and not just an impulse. Uh, but um, uh, the big thing is subtracting one from the wound roll, right? So you're already loaded to the teeth with toughness seven models. Uh, typically speaking, uh, you are going to be wounded somewhere, but you're going to be wounded on threes by the really smashy stuff for the most part. And you're going to be wounded on fives by the not as smashy stuff. And being able to subtract one from wound rolls on something, making something go up, I mean, obviously, really great. But especially on that stuff that is, oh, we're going to wait of attack you, and we're just going to fish for fives. You're essentially, when you take someone from fives to sixes, you're cutting their effective uh, wounds that they expect to get in half. Um, and then... Hall of Despair is uh, another one that you select a unit within 18 inches, and uh, you roll 3d6, and again, we're going against leadership here. So, you know, like I said, we have a lot of leadership debuffs, so it's generally pretty pretty easy to get uh, over the enemy's leadership. Uh, and you, if you roll above their leadership, you get to choose one of three debuffs. The debuffs are, you can choose, uh, if they have any aura abilities, you can select one of the auras, and until your next psychic phase, they lose that ability. So, like, you can shut off rerolls and stuff like that. Or, like, maybe you're going against uh, Drazar and you want to shut off his plus one to wound. Um, you can do, until the start of your next psychic phase, that unit cannot perform actions, and if that unit's currently performing an action, it immediately fails. So any actions that take the turn to do, or if you see that your opponent, you know, a uh, thing you can do is you can do it on like custodes where they don't generally have really cheap units to do actions with, or maybe you're playing a space Marine player that only has one cheap unit left to do actions with. And uh, it seems weird to target a cheap unit with it. But when you do that, if they want to achieve the action at that point, they have to use a more expensive unit. Uh, they're not really getting their capital out of a unit that, you know, maybe they have to do it with Terminators now, which it's not generally what you want to be doing with Terminators. You want to be fighting. Uh, and then finally, the uh, last one is until the start of your next psychic phase. In the fight phase, uh, that unit's not eligible to fight until after all uni uh, eligible units from your army have done so, which is the one I probably uh, pick most commonly, especially when I see, you know, certain melee uh, units or things that also have the uh, fight first abilities that um, my you know Slanesh demons have, and uh, it's just really useful in the list in general. Uh, so yeah, those two 
those two psychic powers are really, really solid, and the game is already pretty melee-heavy for you. You're trying to trap things in melee, so two things that heavily affect melee a lot of the time are are pretty much always going to be relevant in your list. Right. The other the other thing quickly I wanted to touch on was you've mentioned about 16 characters, 407 uh, psychic powers. Uh, I don't know how many warlord traits. You've got three patrols, and that leaves you three CP. Uh, are you concerned about the number of CP? Are there, the, are there not many strats you need to use? Would you rather load up on those psychic powers, warlord traits, characters uh, to get the job done without the CP? Here's the way I feel about CP. That uh, kind of people, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, there are some very powerful stratagems out there. Uh, Chaos Demons doesn't have access to a lot of powerful stratagems. We have a few that are really solid. Um, a, a great combo you can use for you Chaos Demons players out there. I don't use the full combo, but we just talked about, you know, uh, uh, Penumbral Curse reduce, uh, you know, reducing uh, the wound roll of melee attacks. Uh, Slanesh Demon can spend a CP to make everything uh, within range uh, reduce number of attacks. There's also a Slanesh Warlord trait that can also reduce number of attacks. And when you combine that stratagem with those two abilities, you can basically neuter any melee threat to you. Uh, so there, there's stratagems out there. There's a three command point stratagem to fight a corn demon twice, which you can use on Bellacor. Uh, there's a two CP stratagem to make something a four up involve. Uh, there are some decent stratagems. There's the one CP stratagem I met, mentioned with the flamers to give sixes do mortal wounds. However, uh, here's my view on it is that, uh, one, if you're going to run a list like this and you're going to skew the list as, as hard as I do, you you are going to need the HQ slots. Um, and with that, you have the options of doing multiple battalions or you can do multiple patrols. While you're getting taxed a little more CP by doing uh, three patrols because you'll be taxed four CP for the two extra patrols, two battalions uh, to, get this, uh, to get six HQs as well is um, one more command point. Uh, but it is uh, ostensibly so so many less points overall. And when you're jamming your list full of these HQs and you're trying to skew thread it, uh, taking out an entire greater demon to fit in more uh, troops, uh, I, I think it's worth the extra command point for that. As far as the buffs, uh, you have to look at each of the buffs in sort of this way. And this is how I kind of see it when I'm spending command points in this list. If I'm going to spend command points for a one-time buff, such as I'm going to spend one command point for uh, reducing the number of attacks that come in by one, why wouldn't I spend one command point instead to exalt something to a 4-plus invul, which is a buff that'll last the entire game and not just one phase? Or uh, you know, I can exalt for a minus one to wound in shooting. I can exalt for plus two inches to move, plus one inch to... Um, to uh, advance and charge. Uh, I can give myself uh, a relic that gives me a three plus invul. I can give myself a relic to shut down a character. Do any of those lasting the entire game or with the case of the Forbidden Gem being at the most critical point that I, I need it and doing what it does where it shuts down a character in an entire phase. Is that really comparable to getting a plus one to my invul for a phase or uh, fighting a second time more than once. Cause that's generally what I use my three command points for is some is usually fighting Pelicor twice, to be honest. Uh, once a, and, and once in a while I'll have command point rerolls and stuff like that on, on crucial things. But the fact is, is that 
uh, I'm applying command points here for permanent buffs that will continue to be helpful in any situation I'm in, essentially, and also uh, make my list more powerful in any matchup. Whereas uh, using the command points for a temporary reactionary buff, while that gives you more flexibility on what you're going to use, uh, overall, I think sacrificing the command points makes my matchup initially better and makes it to where I have to use those command points less and need them less. So I think it's absolutely worth it to take what I've taken and just take the hit on command points. Yeah, yeah, totally fair enough. Understand. Man, ooh, that is comprehensive there. Um, so I know you've kind of talked about um, uh, a couple of the the different ways you know that you like to use your units. You have so many tools in there. Um, I like the way that you've built your demon list. You know, I've actually had the the pleasure of playing against it once. Um, my questions have to be. What does this look like from a mission perspective? Um, I know that you mentioned, you know, how you can kind of interact with your opponent's mission, but as far as scoring your own points, um, what is your plan usually for, you know, scoring primary? You know, what secondaries do you look like? I guess starting with primary, how do you usually try to plan around getting your your score? Right. So first I look at, uh, you know, what my table looks like and what my opponent's list look, looks like. Uh, I... In the same tournament where we got uh, the pleasure of playing, I also uh, played earlier on stream uh, against an Eldar list that had a lot of line of sight, ignoring shooting. And normally, as I mentioned before, I like to deep strike one set of flamers at three power level, a set of furies at two power level, and uh, brimstone horrors at four. So it's nine power level. It's one CP, and as I'm pretty restricted on CP already, uh, it uh, I, I try to keep those right at where they're at so that I can just do it all for one at nine power level total. And those, all of those can retrieve Vicarious data. So retrieve Vicarious data is a pretty common one that uh, a lot of people take. And uh, um, that's kind of where I am with that. And I'm sorry, I know I jumped ahead to secondaries, but the reason I say this is um, a prerequisite to, if I see a lot of line of sight ignoring shooting, I understand that, two squads of 10 demonettes are not just going to be able to hide behind a building and hold these back objectives. So I may have to sit there and go, okay, uh, you know, flamers, you're going to have to take a little bit of a break from doing your, uh, you know, mortal wound thing. And I'm going to have to stick my six man squad on an objective somewhere uh, and understand that I'm sacrificing a little bit of points of uh, brutality to maintain an objective as uh, they have two wounds apiece, their toughness four, and they have four up in bull, they can withstand that shooting a little more. Uh, but otherwise, if I don't see a lot of line of sight ignoring shooting and whatnot, um, the the girls are perfectly good at babysitting backline objectives. Uh, you usually start with a squad of six flamers on the field, and with their 12-inch movement and the fact that they're flamers, uh, they can guard an objective pretty well if you feel like, oh man, they got first turn, they have a lot of movement, I don't know, you're playing against a raven wing list or something like that. You can push them back uh, left or right, wherever you need to go to cover a flank that's uh, been fairly weakened. Um, as far as the rest of the primaries that are mid-board or further, uh, like I said, this this entire list, uh, other than the Lord of Change and the other than the Zinch Demons, essentially, can advance and charge. Bellacor, if he's within six inches of a keeper, or the Contorted Epitome can advance and charge as well. And uh, so. Again, I can cover Dead Man's Land, uh, is what I call the typical 24 inches uh, in between two deployment zones, uh, pretty easily. Uh, you know, you're 
averages about, like I said, 24.5 inches of movement when you look at with the charge. And uh, with that, uh, I can easily push people off of objectives uh, to try and take those middle objectives. And the other thing with it is when you're aggressive enough, and again, I don't want people to get the wrong idea and think, oh, I just have to be aggressive with this list. That is not always the case. Uh, sometimes you have to have the discipline to know when to hold back, know when to, it, this isn't the right time to just charge in. Uh, but uh, a lot of cases when you're putting these big demons in people's grills and in their deployment zones and all that, uh, all of a sudden the idea of, I'm going to send, you know, a couple hundred points, you know, to my opponent's back lines and take those, you know, demonets off seems a little more daunting when, uh, you know, five or six greater demons are currently occupying your, your area, you know? Uh, so pushing up the board, being aggressive, taking the middle objectives, uh, through aggression is very common and babysitting the back objectives with small stuff. And then making small adjustments based on whether your opponent has line of sight, ignoring shooting. Because the other thing is, is keep in mind when you look at the primaries, you you don't have to score 15 immediately. Uh, you have to, in my opinion, when you play this game, you have to understand that you can, someone who scores 15, 15, 0, 0, isn't doing as good as someone who scores 10, 10, 10, 10, you know? And if someone sits there and goes, I'm going to sacrifice and only take a five or a 10 in this first one. Well, okay. You, if you score 15 one time, you only have to score 10 the other three times of when you can score primaries. So, you know, and in most cases, that's just hold two objectives. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't get wrapped around the axle. If you're like, oh man, turn two happened and I only scored, you know, five or 10 points. Uh, you know, go ahead and put a few extra things in deep strike if you need to, you know, spend an extra command point if you need to put uh, the girls in reserves because you're just like, it's, they'll, they'll just be free targets uh, initially. And um, if you do that, uh, you can more than make up for it later in the game. Uh, so with the primaries, I would say understand that you're not always going to see a 15 point turn two, sometimes not even a, a 10 point turn two. But that's okay. You have turn three and four and five. And as long as you're positioning well and making good decisions on target priority, you can very easily make that up as the game goes on. Uh, so that's sort of my my look at primaries. Uh, I think that uh, more often than not, you'll see me uh, do well on primaries for the second turn and then do mediocre the next two turns and then do uh, really well in the primary within the last turns and I'll max out, you know, I, you don't need to have 15 every time you can't get 15 every time you max out at 45. So just put the goal at 45, understand where you're planning on making your money and target prioritize and plan ahead for those steps on the primaries. As for secondaries, I think too, pretty much, like I said, I take, um, retrieve vicarious data. It's a very easy secondary to get It's 12 points. Um, especially with what you have and whatnot, the, uh, you know, the Furies, the Flamers, the Horrors, and the Demonettes can all do it. Uh, the Demonettes have a movement of seven inches, which actually, you know, that extra inch can be really big. Um, and on top of it, uh, yeah, you have the ability to deep strike, or well, reserve three units for one command point. You know, it's, it's not a bad secondary to take. Uh, then uh, you also have 
uh, table quarters, essentially, uh, you know, um, and when you're in each table quarter, you know, if you're in three table quarters, you get, uh, you get two points. And if you're in all three, you get three points or all four, sorry. Uh, you get three points. Uh, you have two models that, that fly one that can advance and charge. You have uh, three models that have base 14-inch movement can advance and charge. Uh, you have um, two more units that have fly as well and also have a 12-inch, excuse me, three more units that have fly and 12-inch movement. And again, we have one CP reserve three units. Uh, so getting the table quarters is uh, honestly pretty easy. Uh, if you're worried about getting screened out, the thing is, is that, uh, that, it's understandable to be to be worried about that, but my personal opinion is they're going to do need to you know there's not a lot of armies that have the the model count to screen out an entire two quarters of the field even if it is their zones uh, and especially not have those models while also pushing the models forward that they need to in order to really keep the demons, the big demons that are knocking on your door at bay. Uh, so that's another typical one I take as far as, uh, the next secondary, um, kill more in some cases, uh, can be really good. Uh, it's really going to depend on your opponent's, uh, makeup. Uh, we don't have a, we don't have a book secondary yet. And I understand that. Uh, you can also take um, psychic secondaries, and especially now that uh, especially now that they've kind of changed psychic ritual and how it works, perfectly acceptable secondary to take. Uh, you know, it, when when you're looking at uh, the keepers of secrets and the contorted epitome and stuff like that, uh, you don't need you know you're doubling up on a lot of psychic powers from that slash tree. So sometimes the best course of action is you're going to have the movement to get towards the middle. Take the psychic action and, uh, you know, you can plus up that way if your opponent's not giving, it doesn't have a list that you feel you can reliably score another secondary on. Uh, so yeah, uh, between all of those, I think those are my most common, uh, secondaries to look at mission secondaries are sometimes appealing. Um, you can also, uh, utilize secondaries such as pushing your opponent off objectives and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, um, keep in mind, you also have, uh, demons with really large bases. The uh, regulation uh, size of an objective is a 40, uh, 40 mil base. And so if you have a Terminator or greater size base and you put it directly in the center of the objective and that thing is a character or something that can heroically intervene, nothing can touch that objective since you have to be within three inches of the objective without being in heroic intervention range. So if you stick a demon and its base is covering that entire 40 mil area, uh, at no point is someone going to just be able to like toe tap an objective and go, oh, look, I'm within three inches of the objective uh, and I'm not going to engage you because guess what? All right, cool. I'm heroically intervening with the Keeper of Secrets. Hope what you have is really resilient. You know, uh, so keep in mind that, uh, yeah, you 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 can hold on to objectives uh, fairly well with uh, with the demons, even without the uh, without the ability to have OPSEC. So, yeah, uh, that's that's primarily where I'm at with primaries and secondaries. So my biggest question for you on primaries is, um, uh, how do you ever find that the demonets go downfield just to try to get in? You know, I've one of the problems that I've had playing against demons is when you get locked up in combat and you start sitting on objectives with like 
where like, you know, maybe the demon had to touch the rhino that that the contorted epitome is trapping. And of course, the main problem here is that there are keepers, you know, keepers secrets or bellicor in combat as well. I've had that happen to my rhinos. But um, <laughs> when you've got a demonet squad kind of tagging in, trailing all over, um, that I've, I've found that that can be really useful. It's just a question of can they make the jump? I don't know if you're ever able to get there, if they're like a little bit uh, too slow to cross a dead man's land, as you call it. Um, do they ever get involved in that manner? Um, when I run it with squads of 10, typically no. However, if you are running a large squad of demonettes, keep in mind they have a seven inch movement, they have an instrument, so they can have a plus one inch to advance, plus one inch to charge. So your average movement in that case is going to be 11.5 inches. Um, so at that, it's not quite enough to get across Dead Man's Land uh, because, uh, again, you know, even if you have a plus one to charge, you, you can't declare a charge, obviously, uh, if it's outside of 12 inches. But 11.5 inches does get you to the middle of the board. And there's usually plenty of places to hide these demonets, right? So I have run a large squad of demonets before in some of the other uh, events I've gone to. And uh, yeah, they're excellent if they can get trapped in combat. The weight of attacks, uh, you know, they're only strength three, but when you're near the contorted pin, you're plus one strength. So now you're strength four. Uh, and the just ridiculous amount of attacks that they can bring down on someone's head when you're looking at somewhere around um, 90 attacks with a squad of 30, uh, and you're hitting on uh, threes, and then the big part with it is they're AP1 normally, but if you roll a six to wound, it's AP4. Uh, they can definitely pick stuff up, but you can also spread them out and tag so much with them, which is a huge benefit to you know, the horde infantry that demons have access to and with the contorted epitome. Because if you sit there and go, okay, cool, you know, I'm going to tag, you know, uh, about, you know, four different units with this one squad. Yeah, I'm not bringing all my attacks to bear. And, and the beauty of that is that not bringing all your attacks to bear, kind of like I talked about, you know, consolidating and piling into things you're not legally allowed to tag, you can take a large squad of demonettes tag something with only a few of them expecting to plink off a couple wounds but not be able to pick it up which is fine and then you consolidate your or you pile or consolidate after the combat after you've swung you choose not to pile in you go okay i'm only getting five of them then you know you're not picking them up and then you consolidate after the combat uh to get more in and then you go to their turn they're trapped then you go all right cool now that we've gotten through the shooting phase which is the thing i'm most scared of uh i'm going to pile in, get all these attacks, uh, pick up what I was into, and now I'm free again. Uh, especially because I get to fight first. It's Slanesh, you know? Um, so yeah, I think, a, I think a large squad of demonettes when used properly is an amazing asset. They're seven-inch move with the ability to have plus one uh, advance and charge, and then again, if they're near a character with the loci, they can uh, they can advance and charge and whatnot. Uh, they, they're probably not making it. If your first turn they're, they're not legally making it generally unless you roll like sixes a bunch uh, all the way across Dead Man's Land. Uh, but that's fine. You don't need them to. Sometimes it's just right timing with them and you push them up a little bit, you hide them, and when they pop out, they're going to do work and be able to tie up a bunch of stuff and, and kill what you want and not kill what you don't want. And I think that's a, that's a big thing when you're using things like fiends, which I do see more commonly, and the contorted epitome is is know when to exercise restraint and go, I don't want to kill this because it's more valuable to me as a meat shield than it is as just points that are gone. So, uh, yeah, I uh, hope that answers the question. 
Uh, I, yeah, 100%. I, um, I have a question, if that's okay, John. I want to dive in with uh, asking, really, I'm trying to get my head around, um, I, I guess, the broader strategy with the list that you've got. In my mind, it's so aggressive and so powerful in combat that you want to be charging in. And you've already said that you, you're not always going to do that. You can, but you're not always going to. But then I look at uh, what you've got with one of your Keepers of Secrets, and basically it's unkillable. So you, and you, you were talking about achieving primary later on in the game. So I guess that means in a lot of ways that you've got durable elements to your list as well. You're also fast, so you could be a reactive army. You know, overall, where do you see it sitting? Is it, or is it maybe a little bit of everything? So there's a, there, there is a, and I think you'll see this a lot with things like, um, Drakari and um, some of the speed freak stuff we're seeing and all that. There is a lot to be said about movement. I think movement's the most important stat in the game, and Slanesh has it in spades. Uh, having high movement allows you to make that call as you see fit. Uh, I have played more defensively, and do not get me wrong, I, I I play aggressively with this list way more often than I don't. But the thing is, you have to recognize uh, when your opponent is going here i'll feed you this that i don't really care about just to lure this out and you know take this threat out and take that threat out and they kind of piecemeal your heart your army a bit also keep in mind ninth edition is getting a lot more uh killy as we go on it's getting a lot more uh there's a lot more damage output than what we used to see and it's actually part of the reason i'm looking at possibly getting rid of the lord of change uh but that's that's for a later conversation but um the thing is is that uh if you, yes, we do have defensive elements. Yes, we have great things. The Lord of Change is really, really, really hard to kill. Uh, but the thing is, he's not very killy himself. The key with him is if, uh, you know, you can, you want to charge him into as much stuff as possible, generally speaking, or the, what you value most as the biggest threats to your army. Uh, so he can kind of tie them up uh, over the game. And yes, he's 290 points, but if you're tying up 400 500 points of units by constantly charging them then he's made his points even if he's not killing them um you know yes there's there's defensive aspects uh it is primarily an aggressive list but when you go in and you look and you see what you're playing against and you're like all right am i going to use my speed uh based on my rolls and where my opponent position to make a huge alpha strike where i go cool, I'm going to break the opponent's back as soon as possible and make it to where they just don't have the tools uh, anymore to be able to deal with this. Uh, you know, part of controlling the opponent's movement is not just blocking where they can move, but essentially limiting their decisions by saying, sure, you may now move on to these objectives in the middle if you'd like, but that's not where, you know, this cleanup crew is that's taking out your entire right flank. Uh, sitting there and saying, oh, you know, if I push up all the way and I, I have, you know, five, six demons in your face uh, and I've already taken out 500, 600 points and you put two or 300 points in deep strike, is, can you really afford to put it back and go, go pick off the demonettes? Um, that's another way you can control people is by basically going, I'm, I'm going to put something you in a situation where, uh, you can choose to shoot at this, these other aspects of my army that are quite frankly, pretty weak, uh, comparatively objective holders. 
and stuff like that. They're not, you know, durable like custodes are or, you know, some space marines and stuff like that. But when you're sitting there staring down, you know, 30 keepers of secrets attacks, Bellacor, who's able to fight three times in one turn if you play him right. Um, and uh, the contorted epitome, which is trapping stuff anywhere near it. You know, uh, all of a sudden the the plan kind of goes out the window and it's just, all right, well, I need to deal with this now. You know, it's a, the old quote, everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Uh, and this list, list can punch. But keep in mind, um, sometimes the, the way to go is look at your opponent's army. If your opponent's playing uh, a list that's similar to let's say mine, um, and you see uh, very little in the way of things that can do actions, and they chose an action-based secondary, well, guess what? Maybe the call is not to take out the tank or take out the heavy support or the meltas right away. If you take out their uh, things that can you know, make actions happen, all of a sudden they are, they are automatically down those 12 to 15 point secondary that they chose. Uh, so they're there is, there are times where you sit there and go, all right, if I run up right now, what I'm going to pick up is, you know, 70 point, 60 point, 50 point, you know, guard squads or something, or, you know, brimstone horrors, and I'll get rid of that. And then I'll just eat a bunch of shooting and whatnot. Uh, or they'll delay me enough to simply get my demonettes off of objectives and whatnot. Uh, your opponent still has to come towards those objectives. They still have to make those calls. So something that's happened before, I've held back the keepers for a turn, let them come up onto uh, middle objectives, uh, and then I pushed forward the uh, the flamers and used the flamers uh, as sort of bait slash clearing out the sort of, you know, uh, throwaway mobs that they use to just cap those secondary or those uh, primary objectives real quick. And they go, okay, well, I actually have to throw something at these and I do want to get these objectives. And so then they push forward with some actual value in units. Then I come out with the keepers and Bellacor and all that nonsense, uh, take out a decent amount. And while yes, I had to take a turn off of getting value out of my keepers, getting value out of your demons for one turn and then them dying is way worse than losing value out of them for turn one and two, and then them being able to do work turn three through five. Because if they're gone by turn two, well, then you just lost three turns of value out of it, uh, all right. because you couldn't be patient, you know? So Yeah, I feel like patience is something that the guys, the guys teach and talk about a lot. Uh, John, unless you have something else, I feel like we're, we're right on the edge of getting into specific scenarios here, and maybe we should, we should just flow over into part two of this. What do you think? You know, I am I am ready for it. Uh, I'm actually really, really looking forward to part two here. Uh, Mark, you've been wonderful, and uh, man, you've you've been giving me such thorough answers. I'm like already getting ready for part two. I'm really excited to dive into some of the details with you. I really appreciate it, and this is really fun for me. So, uh, thank you guys. I, I really, really appreciate that for for the folks listening. That's part one done. I feel like we've just had we've had the soup, we've had a little bread roll with some butter, and now we're going to get into the steak and fries and all the good stuff in part two. So you've got to stick around for that. If you, if you have part one but not part two, it's basically chaos, right? So if you haven't already, head over to theartofwar40k.com, sign up so you can get the second half of every chat that we have. So much great content instantly available to you for just a small fee. In the second part of this conversation, John and Mark are going to cover the tactics and plans against other armies and other archetypes. So if you want to know how to make chaos demons work, 
or you want to know how to smash a keeper of secrets into the dirt, just tune into part two with the best players in the world. They'll take you through it. Good deal, right? Mark, for the folks who haven't subscribed, I guess you better say goodbye at this point. All right. Well, thank you for listening to me. I appreciate you guys taking the time uh, out of your day, all you listeners, because your time's very valuable and whatnot. So thank you uh, for listening to me talk and gush about my favorite army. Uh, So thank you again. And if you see me out there uh, in the circuits or in the tournaments and all that, feel free to approach me and say hi. Uh, I'm usually wearing an army esports uh, t-shirt with Staff Sergeant Nation on the back slash Leviathan. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I just love being able to reach out to the community. And I, again, thank, thank you everyone for uh, taking the time to listen. Great stuff. Thank you, mate. And we will, uh, we'll talk to you more in part two. If you're a subscriber, we'll see you real soon. If not, for John Lennon and the Demon King, Mark Ashed, I'm Steve Joel. Thanks so much for listening. This is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.